Welcome to the eighth episode of Observable Stream, and this episode is all about software architecture. To help us explore this fundamental component to building software is, as usual, my co-host Reagan. Hey, Phil. Very uh, keen for our discussion today. To help give us a real in-depth look at, into the world of software architecture, for the first time we have a special guest, and joining us today is co-founder and CTO of Open Value, presenter and seasoned software architect Bert-Jan Schreiber. OpenValue is a full-stack Java consultancy company in the Netherlands whose offices are based in Europe and specializes in the ISAQB Certified Professional 4 Software Architecture Training, which is great to have Bert-Jan here. So Bert-Jan, welcome to the show. Could you perhaps give us the honors of introducing the field of software architecture and to kick it off also to answer these two questions. What was the last architectural pattern that really blew your mind? And what was the last architectural pattern that really made you anxious? <laughs> yeah, that's, that was a great question. So I think the last pattern that blew my mind was uh, a CQRS. Uh, so it's basically about uh, having a separate parts for uh, writing data and reading data. And I hadn't heard about this before when I first learned about it. And it seemed really simple, but also really powerful. So typically when, you, when you're designing a system, you either optimize it for quickly writing stuff or quickly reading stuff. Uh, and there's always trade between those two. But when I first learned about CQRS, it, uh, I was amazed that, oh, wow, you can actually do both. And then you have another problem, which is basically keeping the different uh, read and write databases in sync. But this allowed me, for example, to design systems that were optimized by, I don't know, writing to a Cassandra database really fast, and then uh, making a projection of a Cassandra database in an Elasticsearch database for reading and fuzzy searching really fast. So I, I felt that I could then combine the, the, the two good sides of these two databases into a single system. I think, I think that's quite a nice architectural pattern to apply. Like in theory, I've never had the opportunity to apply it in practice because often whenever you have this kind of requirement for event sourcing or you uh, have a requirement where you want to split up your read and write databases. So you want to have some kind of aggregation uh, for, of events that are immutable in your event log, and then you want to persist them and, and uh, uh, sync them over to your uh, read database. The actual infrastructural challenges around that, are you, are you not paying then like double the, the infrastructure double the complexity, double the code base and support frameworks that you need for all of these uh, technologies. I mean, in your experience, how how easy has it been to apply CQRS? Yeah, so it's nice that you mentioned event sourcing because that would be the answer to my second question, the last architectural pattern that made, my, made me anxious. Uh, because event sourcing, I, I like to see those two as different parts. They're obviously usually combined, but event sourcing for me is uh, not storing any state for a system but just storing, continuously storing events that lead to, to a state and then having some mechanism of building state, typically in memory, right? If you use something like uh, Axon or Akka Persistence. Whereas with CQRS, I typically look at it a bit more uh, simple, uh, where I'm just simply uh, dividing uh, writes in, in one database and reads from another database. And if you do this, then you, there's different ways of handling getting the read database up to date, for example. So typically this is where, whenever you write something, you send an event to update the read database. But another strategy could be <clears throat> to have some kind of process that regular, regularly runs and uh, um, uh, some batch shop that reads from the, uh, the write database and then rebuilds the read database. So the, the, the nice thing about this, and I mainly use this in, in big data systems, is that once you, you trust that your write database is um, uh, well safe and you won't lose any data there, then you're really flexible in completely redesigning your read database, throwing it away, rebuilding it whenever you screw something up. There's always the emergency break on, okay, let's let's rebuild this uh, in, in, I don't know, a couple of minutes, a couple of hours, and then we're back in business uh, again. Um, so I've, I've also used this in, in uh, migrations, where, for example, we need to migrate from an old data source to a new data source, uh, and then we would kind of like uh, build the new data source and have the new system read from this and then still use the old data source for writing and then find a way to keep those two uh, in sync. So I think I've, I've applied the pattern a bit more broad than it's typically used because typically it's used in combination with event sourcing, but just the sheer thought of having one data structure for writing, one data structure for reading and some synchronization method in between could even be, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a batch process or something I, I found really powerful. Yeah, it's kind of similar to, well, not not similar, but you get the same level of isolation if you choose for like read secondaries or some or some other architecture in like a modern day uh, cluster for MongoDB or for Postgres RDS. 
there you also have a separation, but it's still in like the replicator is then in Postgres, like the right ahead log or it's the op log in Mongo and it's just flushed to the secondaries. And you have obviously like eventual consistency issues there. Yeah, and it's still the problem that you have the same data model, right? So what I've also found powerful is you can have different data models and even different databases for your read and your write models. Yeah, 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 definitely. And you mentioned migrations there because you mentioned it in a different way that you're migrating data from one to, uh, data store to the next. But is there not a trouble? Is there not some sort of underlying fundamental issue with CQRS and migrating the uh, write events or the the commands themselves yeah um so so if, if you if you use well especially if you use uh, event sourcing and you write events to your database and you want to update those those events that's always a that's always a, a problem right because well are you going to rewrite, rewrite history or not there are obviously some well let's say schema evolution tools uh, for this but i've mainly tried to solve this in the the projection database so whenever i needed something new I would typically try to find a way to keep the events unchanged because usually all the information you need is, is in there and then find a way to regenerate my projection database to make sure that I now have all the information in there. And that's what I've always also found interesting that uh, you don't need to think that much about how your your read database or your projection looks like because once you still keep all the original information in your, your event log, then you're all, always free to, I don't know, add a field or change something uh, in your projection database, even if this this is something that that you need to go back for for years, if you still have the data, then you're free to go. So this this always gave me somewhat like peace of mind that whenever I screw up something, I miss something in my in my uh, read database, I'm always free to rebuild it uh, in a completely different way. It seems to me that both CQRS and event sourcing are made more attractive as architectural designs by the advent of self-healing and self-regulating infrastructure. So do you think that recent developments in say DevOps or some of the products provided by cloud providers make a software project more likely to buy into these software architecture uh, design patterns? Yeah, I think so because it's 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 a lot easier to, for example, have an auto-scaling Cassandra cluster or an auto-scaling uh, Elastic cluster uh, for your for your store. So before, if if you would run into trouble with your uh, I don't know your 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 event log database, well then you're basically screwed, right? Because you cannot stop receiving events. Uh, then then you basically lo- lose lose track of your source of truth. Um, so the availability of of, of having uh, you know cloud tools that can easily uh, recover when something is wrong or easily scale up and out, I think has definitely helped in in these more uh, like d- data intensive uh, architecture patterns. Yeah, definitely. I think the the idea that you can actually like pick and choose the right database for the right task is also a pretty uh, pretty unique and special characteristic of CQRS. But before we dive like even further into uh, the technical details of one architectural pattern, I want to ask you like one very high level question, which is, uh, if say I was fresh out of studies from university, I'd done you know a bit of Java software engineering courses, uh, maybe some design patterns, um, and some other theoretical classes or algorithms. What would you then how would you best describe then software architecture as a as a role, but also as a practice and a, a craft uh, to someone fresh out of university? Yeah, that's a, I think it's a great question. And, and even though it sounds like a simple question, it's not an easy one to answer because there's not like one really broadly agreed definition of software architecture. There, there are dozens or hundreds of definitions. So for, for me, it, it, software architecture as a practice mainly means um, uh, designing the overall structure of a software project. So it's about making design decisions about important stuff. And that's still vague, right? Because what what's the important stuff? Uh, well, it depends on what's important for your project. And this can depend on any technical requirements you have, non-functional requirements, business requirements. So I'd say it, it's about um, uh, the things you wish you could get right at an early stage in the project because they're harder to fix in a later stage. So these are kind of the important things, choosing a framework, for example. Um, Ideally, you're you're good at making right decisions in the early stage of the project for those things that have high impact to change or to fix later on. Um, so, as as a um, uh, as a role as a software architect, it's for me it's about designing these things, and also there's also an organizational role about uh, having multiple teams work in somewhat the same way. Uh, without reinventing the wheel uh, so that code and, and people can be shared between those teams 
Um, but still, while, while giving them still enough independence to solve problems in the way that they like to solve problems. Uh, and in the end, I think the simplest definition I could give is that the, the goal is of software architecture is to enable uh, development teams to provide solutions for business problems. I think a lot of the initial apprehension coming from students in learning software architecture is that it's often taught in this very UML-centric academic context. How important is diagramming and perhaps more specifically, how important is UML in the design of a software architecture? Yeah, I think di diagramming and visualization is hugely important in software architecture because it's, at least for me, it's my main uh, tool of choice to uh, structure my thoughts, to design things and to communicate things that I've designed. Looking at UML specifically, um, I think UML is generally uh, considered as being a bit old school nowadays. On the other hand, there are definitely um, interesting interesting parts of UML in the you know the types of diagrams you can have in uh, in UML. So, uh, for example, in a software architecture course uh, I teach, uh, I typically touch a, a couple of UML diagrams, like a context diagram, a component diagram, class diagram, and even uh, sequence diagrams. And and just knowing that these different types of views of looking at a system exist can can help you in getting your ideas across as an architect. Uh, on the other hand, I also teach Simon Brown's uh, CFO model uh, as a bit more modern approach for diagramming. But if you zoom out a bit, uh, also the CFO model is not that much different from UML's context, components, and class uh, diagrams. Um, so so I, I do have a specific preference for if you create diagrams to not use any visual drag and drop tools, but to use more as a diagrams as code approach, where, for example, you write your diagrams in plain text or in planned UML, uh, and, and, and your documentation system renders the diagrams for you because in my experience it helps a lot in keeping your diagrams up to date. If I am in some design document and I need to, uh, if I want to update a diagram, I need to open some other tool, then load the definition there, change something, download it again as a PNG and include it in my document, I'm not going to do it because I'm too lazy to do so. If it's a wiki and I can click edit, type three lines and now I have a newly generated diagram, I'm definitely going to do it. So. The tools like Plant UML, for example, are fairly well supported in most documentation tools. So I think UML definitely still has, has value. Uh, it's not the only way. There are multiple ways. And in the end, I think you should use what works and, uh, and, and find a way where it's inviting for everyone to also make updates to these types of uh, diagrams. And in the end, e even when I'm just prototyping, I'm not going to sit behind my computer and type a diagram, but I'm going to stand in front of a whiteboard and draw boxes and lines. And once I'm fairly happy with the boxes and lines on the whiteboard, I'm then going to type them in my computer to, to put them in a design document or in a design system somewhere. Yeah, I think one super nice concept about this like emerging idea of keeping the documentation and the or the architectural diagrams close to the code and also have them generated from like text uh, uh, files is that you can also like open a PR to make some kind of change to the software architecture and that itself can serve as like a RFC style like code uh, code review around the architectural change you want to intend to make. And then you can later make the code changes and introduce the new services or rip out modules or restructure things, which is, uh, I think, like very a very neat idea. Yeah, and in the end, I think if you also do the same for your documentation with something like, uh, I don't know, MK Docs or some documentation system that's also in version control, you can get pretty close to having everything in version control and, and maybe even in the same commit. So your architecture changes, your documentation changes, your code changes, your tests, and have everything in the same uh, uh, um, pull request. So I think that's a powerful concept if you uh, deploy it wide enough in your, your development practices. Yeah, indeed. I, and, and I guess so a tool that we most commonly use, uh, Reagan and I, in our day-to-day -day work is Confluence still. Um, so for us, architecture documents are usually a fair deal, a fair distance away from the, uh, from the code still. The added advantage there, though, is that you do... If, if there is some architectural document you need to then uh, share with a party who's not going to have GitHub access or not going to have the ability to root around your project, then it is a, it is a nice medium to share it nonetheless. And even Confluence has plenty of ML plugins, so you can still uh, diagram as code uh, there. I wanted to ask you in your experience over the, over the years working in uh, uh, Open Value, and you also now give the training for uh, for software architecture. How have you seen the role of a software architect change over time since you began? Yeah, I think um, um, th things have changed because, well, what, what I just uh, uh, began in, in my career 
which is, well, let's say about 15 years ago, we were still in a fairly uh, static way of, of, of big upfront design, right? So we were um, like making a functional, getting requirements first, making a functional design, making a technical design, and then making some architecture. And then once this was all cast in stone, the development team would start and, and build. So the software architects that I work with at the beginning of my career were mostly actually quite far away from actually building software and, and creating those big upfront designs. And I think over time, when, when Agile Software Development and DevOps became popular, um, well, the teams started to, to work more in, in you know, small, small iterations and continuously delivering new increments. And uh, most of the, the good architects I've worked with also became more involved in, in those feedback loops and kind of moving in the same pace with, with the teams and, and uh, also focusing on, on getting, getting this feedback on what are designed. This has actually helped the team to build software in a better way. So I have seen, I think, the, the, the role of the architect become closer to the development team and, and kind of working in the same pace, the same rhythm and focusing on the same uh, feedback loops. And with the movement towards this more agile work methodology, have you found that it's become more difficult to build a, a culture of documentation within a team? Since if you're ad hoc and you're moving from sprint to sprint, there isn't necessarily a time where you sit down and document your work or how the system has changed over that time not in the same way that, that maybe Waterfall has, like you mentioned. Um, or are there principles or ceremonies that teams can introduce into their software projects to help build this culture, this ethos of documentation? Yeah, uh, yeah, many. So early on in my career, I, I learned the difference because of what we were uh, calling there uh, project documentation and system documentation. So project documentation is something that only lives during the project that you can basically throw away after the project. So there you design about how you're going to build things and when you've built them, you can you can throw this away. And then system documentation is about the, the documenting the current state of the system. This is one big problem with system documentation that if you write this by hand, then you know pretty sure that it's only going to be fairly up to date right after you finish writing it and then from afterwards, uh, it's, it's fairly hard to keep it up to date. So the only ways where I found the documentation to be fairly up to date is where there was a good link between the actual software in version control and the diagrams that were used. So I've, I've had some success with using the, um, the Structurizer tool, which is built by Simon Brown, also known from the C4 model, uh, that has a way of um, partly describing your, your architecture in a DSL. So it could be Java code or, or, or more like a JSON-like DSL and partly generating the architecture diagrams from your source tree. So the, there are, for example, some component detectors that can detect spring components. And in my case, I use it to uh, detect uh, vertex microservices. And the nice thing about this is that you, you, you basically unleash this tool on your, on your um, source code uh, tree and then it generates a diagram. And then you look at this diagram and then you most of it is as you expect. And some of the things are unexpected. There are lines between components that you didn't expect. And usually the, this is actually, these lines are there and they're, they're in an unwanted way. So then these diagrams can actually give you some insights on how, how things are working. And in my experience, it, it is hard work to, to get this, this up and running and also keep it up to date because it's fairly easy to break these kind of tools whenever you, I don't know, switch to different kind of components or different types of microservices. But it is, in my experience, the only way to keep your system documentation somewhat up to date if you generate it. Otherwise, you're pretty sure that's going to be out of sync at the next change that anyone is going, going to do. Yeah, funny they mentioned that because I think Reagan and I had a similar activity with one of our uh, projects at Picnic and we also discovered some lines with uh, between, there we used a, which, which tool do we use actually to generate the uh, Maven module dependencies? Uh, that was that was a self-role tool. We it was just a small thing we wrote in uh, HTML and JavaScript. Oh yeah, so if, yeah, so we even built our own tool, and then like we just saw all of a sudden lines appear between modules that really shouldn't be there. Like in a in a ideal module structure that we have, then we realize, mm, okay, we've kind of let ourselves go a little bit loose there, and maybe we should clean that up. And I think it's it's interesting once you start to auto-generate that as well, and you really get that perspective difference between what you thought the system was on a nice diagram that you created in Confluence versus the one that actually the code tells you is the real uh, the reality. And I think ser service maps are also uh, a nice one to see. Yeah, so I had a kind of good experience there with, with, um, uh, with setting this up, that it would automatically update diagrams on every push to the repository. 
uh, and I showed it to people that were fairly enthusiastic and then <laughs> we forgot about it for half a year and then after half a year it turned out that it would, was broken for five months and nobody noticed it so you also do need to put in some work to get people to actually appreciate this and keep looking at, at, at this but it's, this is um, I think it's Arnold's law of documentation that's like number one that documentation isn't up to date number two if it exists if it should exist it doesn't and then number three is that only only documentation for useless programs transcends the above two laws which is quite interesting so is uh, is this auto-generated documentation actually useful or is it like i don't know nice to look at once and then you kind of dismiss it and it's there uh, sort of in the background but you never really use it as a as a conversation point yeah i think it's it's definitely uh interesting to do it once and look at it and and you know wonder why those relationships between those components are there that you didn't expect uh whether it's some it's it's worth continuously updating it i think also matters whether your what your need for this documentation is so if you have a stable team everybody has a mental model of how the system looks like in their heads and you're not onboarding any new people then it doesn't really matter whether the architecture diagram is broken for half a year if you're onboarding new people every month, then probably it makes sense to have this updated uh, in a timely manner so you, you can share the actual state with, with the people that you're onboarding. And do you think with onboarding people and, and also the, the training sessions that you conduct, that, that software architecture is something that can be taught or maybe can be read in books or, or learned at conferences? Or do you think that people really have to go through the action of designing and implementing systems before they can really get a feel for how software architecture works? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I believe that you cannot uh, learn software architecture just from, from theory, from reading books. So what I'm saying, what I'm teaching also in the course is that this course, the course that I teach gives you a basic understanding of the foundations of software architecture, things like uh, documentation, stakeholder management, uh, patterns, uh, quality, etc. But But purely knowing this theory doesn't make you a good software architect. Um, because in the end, it's also about building experience and, and, and having experience in what solution did work at which client, in which situation, and when did it, did it not work. So in the end, a good architect um, builds on, on having a solid theoretical foundation and preferably years of hands-on experience where you can where you actually experienced with, with which things did work and which things didn't work. So reading books definitely helps to inspire you. But uh, by only reading books, I don't think that you, you, you will become a good software architect uh, in practice because you're missing basic, basic experience with having seen situations before and applying stuff that you learned in the past to new situations. How do you learn, do you think, best like in, an, in a safer environment, let's say, because if you have to do this by trial and error, then there's a lot of unhappy customers that you're going to have, I think, as a consultancy company. So where do you draw the line between let's just let's try this out this pattern out to see whether it works and then i'll learn something from it or it will work or, or both of course and where do you draw like the where do you draw the line or is there any way to to practice software architecture without actually having uh, having to impact a production system or a client's code yeah yeah that's an interesting question so i have a couple of thoughts here uh so first one is uh, well i i i work at a <laughs> at a consultancy, right? So, so sometimes we uh, tend to be distracted by shining, shiny things and, and want to design, you know, new stuff. Uh, on the other hand, regarding, you know, risks, as long as it doesn't really impact an end user, what you're doing, then I wouldn't really call a problem what you did. Uh, it might impact your project planning or whatever when you make a, make a wrong choice. Uh, but I think uh, experimentation is something that can gain a, a lot more insight than most people uh, are aware of. So um, in many cases, you don't have all the answers or you have only part of the answers. And then it's basically if you need to make a decision about are we going left or right, are we going to use tool A or B, or I'm going to do this now or postpone it, then there are a couple of th things you, you can think about. So first is, um, can I postpone this decision? And, and what's the risk if I postpone this? Do, can we buy more time to get more information by, for example, doing a small experiment? Uh, second, what's the um, what's the short-term cost if I make the wrong decision? If I make the wrong decision and we we build on this for a sprint, and then after a sprint we notice that this is not this wasn't the right choice. Well, then it's basically cost us two weeks, right? But that's better than making the wrong choice now and figuring out after six months because then we throw away six months of work. Uh, and I also try to tend to think about what's the what's the cost in the long term of if I make the wrong decision uh, to to, re to uh, basically uh, revert. So let's say we're going to choose between um, Java and uh, Spring. 
or uh, I don't know .NET and some .NET framework that I'm not aware of. Well, it's go the cost of reverting this choice is going to be huge because you basically need to throw everything you have away and start over again and fire all the people you have and get new people on board. So, so um, I try to to kind of uh, weigh risks by thinking about these different factors. And once the risk is high, then I better take some extra time to think about what I'm going to do. If the risk is low, well, let's just go ahead and, and take the pain whenever we notice that it was the wrong decision. As long as, as you don't notice that, that it was the, long decision, the wrong decision after six months or something, then you're typically fine. And in your experience, uh, without naming names, ha have you encountered another software architect that was really pushing for their design and, and unwilling to move on, on their opinions on where the software project should go? Uh, I think everyone has a working experience probably many of our listeners uh, of uh, a software architect that comes with their you know their 10 commandments of software design and, and just expects the developers to to implement them yeah yeah i've had those experiences um not not that many but i can recall some uh, but even then it was still in the beginning fairly hard to argue against uh, a design like this. So then there's a design and there are some design principles and some ideas behind this and some assumptions. And then uh, it's typically fairly hard in the early stage like this to come up with argumentation why this is wrong that, that the person is prescribing. It might be because they have some you know, personal affection for the tool or that you think it doesn't fit or but but to, to really uh, uh, invalidate the design in the early stage of a project is typically fairly hard because you, you haven't seen it gone wrong uh, yet. So I've worked in some projects where the ideas look pretty good in the beginning and in the end, if you would look back after a couple of years, you think, okay, you think, okay, maybe we should have gone, we shouldn't have gone for this reactive stack because it was fairly complex and we could have just gone with basic spring all along. But you don't notice until after you've experienced for, I don't know, three, four, five, six years that uh, uh, it was hard to get people on board who would understand all the reactive uh, stuff. Um, and I'm not saying that rea that going reactive is, is not or is the way to go, but it's always dependent on the other situation where you are, the amount of load you have and, and the type of complexity of applications uh, you have. I have seen some, some recent examples where, where, where some architects were highly charmed of, uh, I don't know, uh, something with, with, with ACA or event sourcing or something and ended up designing a fairly complex system where when somebody explained the system to me, I had trouble understanding it. <laughs> and after this, I, I, I said, okay, so now I think I understand what the system is doing. How about if we would design it like this? And then it was basically like two services and a database. Would it, would it still work functionally in the same way? And then <laughs> this person uh, uh, gave it some thought and yes, I think it will definitely work in the same way. And which, which one would be simpler? The things you have now or the, the simple thing? No, the simple thing would be a lot easier. So then, well, in the end still, you've invested lots of time and effort in what you currently have. So you're not going to throw this all away, but I've definitely seen some situations where things were either over-engineered or, or the wrong architectural pattern or the wrong stack. But as I said, it's typically fairly hard to, to invalidate a wrong choice early on in the beginning. Because if you're just beginning and you don't really know which direction your project is going to be, any choices could be valid choices um, typically. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. It's like the, I think that's divine is like the Concord effect where basically you've invested so much money into a program that you know is doomed not to succeed, but because you've invested so much money into it, there is no value in throwing it away uh, for an alternative. And uh, software architecture, architecture, I feel, is riddled with that, or at least software design is riddled with that, because you mentioned like, you know, a reactive stack. Well, reactive programming got a huge uh, hype, especially in the Java world uh, a good five years ago. And companies that have used or employed reactive programming as a uh, as a technology now expect to see some kind of payoff from it over time um, because they expect hey my application should be way more performant uh, it should be easier to do multi-threading uh, these kind of things uh, but of course it introduces a bunch of other complexities and um, but once you bought once you bought into it so much then it is like you're building your own little concord projects because you just you can't really go back on uh, on this project any longer and the hard part is that if you look at, if you're now at a reactive stack and you're know, enduring load X, then it's also fairly hard to compare what, with what would the situation have been if we hadn't gone reactive? Uh, you know, would we have run on twice or, or third, three times the resource that we run now? So that there's one thing I recall from a project uh, that was a, uh, like a government uh, tender project where, where multiple companies could like uh, make a bid. 
And then this project was designed by two, uh, I think, freelance information architects. And they uh, had the experience that <laughs> that software was hard to change because in the pre their previous projects, they'd worked with developers that built systems that were, once they were delivered, really hard to change. So their goal was to really help the client to make the system really uh, adaptable and changeable. And to in order to achieve this, they had uh, designed the system to be so flexible that at every screen where you could enter data, you could, in the software, configure extra fields that you could, as a user, add to the screen because that was really flexible and then you wouldn't need to change the software. And as a result of all these design choices, the system became so complex that, indeed, it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy and the system was, was hard to change. Uh, so, in the end, the, the client came with a fairly simple requirement, like, we need some reports. And then we're like, well, the, the entire data model is not suitable for building reports. And then he said, well, yeah, but that's the core feature of the system. And I said, so why, why are we hearing of the core feature of the system after we've been struggling with making a flexible system after six months of building? And then, well, in the end, it became a big, uh, well, <laughs> almost a legal battle. But we, in the end, we convinced the clients to, to fire the two information architects to throw everything away, to get started from scratch, to build something really simple, focus on reporting. And we ended up getting it live in three months with two developers or something. Uh, just because we were keeping things really, really, really simple and, and not thinking about software as hard to change, but just, okay, we need three fields, let's create three fields and a screen with three fields and that's it. If we ever need to add a fourth field, okay, that's five minutes of work. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, interesting project where we actually got the clients so far to throw everything away, start over again and, and made it work. But that was more like a, uh, I don't know, <laughs> a, a, a little bit heroic approach that I couldn't advise anyone because, well, we had said that we would make this work. So we were also kind of invested in making it work, uh, which was an interesting and exciting time. And on the topic of requirements elicitation, in your opinion, what role does the software architect play in gathering the requirements of a software project? Or is that a, a product owner's responsibility? Um, how does that usually pan out in, in your experience? Yeah, I like to uh, be involved uh, as early as possible in, in, in requirements discussions. Um, because even in, in early stage where you're discussing requirements or talking to a stakeholder, um, you, it helps to be at least somewhat involved for, for two reasons. First one is to steer functional discussions in a way where you're actually designing easily buildable software. Sometimes when making a small functional change, software gets a lot easier to, to build. Um, and, and second, to help coming up with non-functional requirements for, for a system as early as possible, since they, they can typically have a fairly big influence on your overall software design. For example, if you're talking about availability or performance, if it needs to be really high performant or really high available, there's a significant impact in how you're going to design your system and your infrastructure. Uh, so I like to help there as well. Uh, and well, w when the project progresses, uh, I, I typically try to continuously validate whether the assumptions we've made and the designs we've made are still um, uh, applicable to the current situation and try to, to, to steer there wherever possible. But definitely in the beginning, you can make a big impact by uh, kind of steering in requirements analysis, but also educating and explaining in, in non-functional requirements. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up non-functional requirements because the way I would also say it is that you have many roles usually in a modern day uh, tech company. You can have a security engineer, a QA engineer, and th their role is basically to prioritize a few very key non-functional requirements. So namely security, testability. Uh, if you put them uh, to work and you say, you know, how would you then uh, advise teams to help build their software? Of course, they will say it it depends on how testable you want to make your system, how much you want to buy into that, how secure the system needs to be, because it's, of course, a trade-off. But then an architect is kind of a mix of all these roles, all of these non-functional requirements they have. So going back to your previous example, with extensibility of a system, they always have to think about extensibility, performance, scalability, security, all these things. And it's like mind-boggling to make a decision then. I guess that's why most architects will always say it depends as like their entry to any question ever, ever asked to, to them. Um, even if it's, uh, would you want tea or coffee? Um, so how do you actually deal with that as a software architect? Is, it, is there a formula for knowing how best to 
create this kind of combination of non-functional trade-offs or is it really uh, is it experience-based? Well, I try to see it as my, my goal to make these types of requirements. They're typically hard to express in, in clear uh, sentences or numbers, right? Because the business isn't able to come up with those numbers and, and, and well, the development team needs those clear numbers. Uh, like, I don't know, what should response times uh, be in the 99 percentile for uh, 10,000 requests per second or something. Uh, but if you <laughs> if you if you explain this to 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 the business, then you first need to explain what all those different things mean that you've said. So, I typically see it as my as my role to try to come up with as as precise as possible numbers and descriptions of these types of things. So, for example, if somebody says it needs to be really secure. Well, okay, that's super fake, right? Because what does it mean? Yeah, it means that we shouldn't get hacked. Uh, okay, but we can uh, we can never know. We can only think about countermeasures we can take to prevent that we're going to be hacked, uh, which is educating our developers, doing pen tests, secure code reviews. And we can think about limiting the blast radius whenever we have an intruder by thinking about defense in depth and multiple lines of defense there and infrastructure uh, and network uh, security. Uh, but but uh, when, when you think about availability or performance, it's a bit harder, a bit easier to get into numbers, right? Because, well, uh, if somebody says it needs to be 99.99, and then, uh, and, and then the first question is, uh, how big is your wallet? And uh, so, so why? Because, well, 99.99 means that you need to be pretty much available uh, the, the year round. And this means a lot of extra work in terms of infrastructure, redundancy, uh, fault tolerance, etc. cetera. Uh, are you available? Uh, are you willing to pay like 1 million per year? I typically use 1 million because it sounds like a big number, right? And I, I have no idea. But are you willing to pay 1 million a year extra for, for, for this nine. No, no, not at all. And then in the end, when you keep asking questions, they, what they mean is during office hours between nine and five, the system needs to be available as much as possible, which basically means that when it goes down, it shouldn't be down for more than 30 minutes once a month or something. And this is a lot different from 99.9%, where you only have, I don't know, a couple of minutes or something uh, in a year that you can can, can be down. Uh, and, 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 and it's also typically a big difference between when it goes down unplanned or planned when you're doing maintenance. No, if we're doing maintenance in the weekend, then it's fine that it's down. So I try to really show them what their statements mean in terms of difficulty, um, money and <laughs> and and uh, consequences for end users. Yeah, exactly. You just have to show them like even better show them maybe a graph of like every every nine that you want to add on in this log log 10 scale, you see this uh, huge spike in, uh, <laughs> in costs for a project. But it's... Um, yeah, indeed, that's an interesting one because you then need to define like what's what's your like your window for an SLA. Do you say you expect then all down to SLA of 99.9% over a month is very different from a SLA of 99.9% over a, a single day um, because it determines like what buckets of unavailability you can have. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, also an interesting way to look at it. One kind of very almost philosophical design book uh, or, or a design teaching in, in software engineering is the domain-driven design by Eric Evans. And this is like quite famous for uh, building, you know, the right architecture for the right use cases and with a fundamental set of primitives and ideas. However, personally, I've always found it pretty hard to take this book and actually apply it to the to real-world situations. So CQRS is one example where domain-driven design is kind of influenced by so there's other architectural patterns that are influenced by it, but actually taking domain-driven design as like a fundamental building block and making a software solution from it, I always found quite hard. Do you have any experiences with uh, with that challenge? Yeah, I mostly uh, use two, two concepts from DDD um, whenever I'm designing things or doing things. And, and the first one is, is the concept of having a ubiquitous language, right? So agreeing on one language and one set of terms for business, IT, and anyone involved as early as possible in the project, because this greatly improves the understanding uh, between people from different backgrounds. So uh, I remember being in a project ages ago, and then for somebody that was doing something with the system, we had the words customer, consumer, relation, user, and I don't know, five other words. And it would all mean different things in different contexts. So, so having even a glossary of those terms or agreeing on those terms or using the, I don't know, even the Dutch business terms in our English code base, whatever whatever you do, as long as you have some some agreement there, I think this helps in, in communicating between people because otherwise you're continuously mapping those in your head and you're bound to make to make errors uh, there. 
Uh, and the second thing I, I like is, is the idea of, of a bounded context. So in DDD, it's, it's about you know creating models for things. And one of the things you notice when you're designing bigger systems is that it doesn't work anymore to create one mod one model that fits your entire system. So instead, you you make different uh, bounded models that have their own their own uh, small model that are really clear about their interfaces with other systems and, and the messages that are being exchanged exchanged there. And this idea of a bounded context maps fairly well to to a microservices like distributed system because then you can have your own uh, model within a service as long as you're really clear on the interface to to other services outside uh, there. And, and then, well, concepts like aggregate routes and stuff, I don't use much. I mainly see this having value for, for event source systems, but I'd say that the main two things I'm taking away are the ubiquitous language and, and, and it is the, the idea for bound, having a bound context. Yeah, aggregate routes are like going back to what you said before is like the snapshot of, of an event source capture. So you can actually say, okay, rather than replay all events to source my uh, read database, you say you source up until this point and you replay. So you basically aggregate up until a certain point and then you replay the next uh, 100 events or something to make the system more efficient as like a basically a trade-off to say, I want, you know, replayability up to N, N being 100 and then you uh, you have the rest kind of snapshot backed up somewhere. Yeah, nice. And then, um, yeah, that's an interesting one about the, uh, about the uh, bounded context because you also see uh, in my experience, like the the strains of systems or teams pulling away working on the same system, um, you have then two two like nicely isolated contexts, and that you can say this is where we can draw the lines. But you also have this like shared kernel idea where some things are just necessary to keep in a centralized place, and to have a shared definition of this class or this interface or or, or something, and you don't deviate here because it's like really core or fundamental to what you need to. Uh, uh, to what you need the team, two teams to kind of converse about, um, which is also interesting. It's like communication between teams, but also between business uh, and teams themselves. So it's, uh, yeah, nice. Then, um, yeah, I think uh, I wanted to ask you maybe a bit of a, a, a controversial question. And I think we touched on this before, but without naming names as well, when have you seen like the, um, the role or title architects principal architect actually caused damage because in theory like architecture you mentioned before is a lot for experience and there are very experienced senior developers who have a knack for architecture but don't have the title um isn't that can that cause damage in an organization just because it's a role and it's a specific title and you need to uh, kind of respect this guy's uh, authority to a certain extent yeah <laughs> yeah i don't care about titles much I have seen a positive use for, for them, for those titles, uh, in bigger organizations where people seem to care for some sort of hierarchy. So I remember working for a smaller team that was part of a, a bigger organization, but we were kind of like an, an, an island there, only doing the things that we, we found interesting and, and useful, and not talking too much to the, to the outside world and the architects and the security officers, part of the bigger organization. But, but for those times that we did need to get in touch with those teams, um, well, they were sometimes like an, an architect called us and said, well, are you conforming to this architecture rule? And then we said, yeah, sure, just come over and check it out. And then typically they wouldn't come. And sometimes they would come over and we'd be, <laughs> we'd be scared a bit, but then we would explain what we were doing. They still would be fine. But in those meetings, I, I found that surprisingly, it, it, it helped if I introduced myself as a senior software architect or or a lead software architect uh and and the uh well the, the message that i sent didn't change but but i got less pushback uh from the people because they were more respecting me as their senior counterpart and i was just making up those titles because i didn't really have a job title but it, but it but it did help and and sometimes i even remember that in organizations where there was a bit more split between business and and um it that if there were if there was a problem between business and IT that I couldn't couldn't work out, then then somebody from the business would sometimes say we need an architect to look at this, and then my my my, my development friends they phoned me and said can you can you help us out I'm sure and then I'm uh, I said yes uh, here I am let me look at the problem and obviously they'd already told me what they want me to say to them but well because I as the officially appointed architect has said it uh, they they would now listen which is also an interesting approach. But the, 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 the wrong way around can also be, be the case, right? When people who've worked somewhere long enough to be 
to so that they can no longer avoid being promoted to 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 something with a title do do more damage than good but uh, in general i don't really mind about titles that much and i've also never cared about hierarchy uh, that much but whenever i need to assume a certain title to 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 get things done i'm i'm happy to do so but otherwise uh, fake it till you make it is the is the general principle of uh, how you become a software architect yeah nice then i have um also another sort of analogy i want to use like if you are let's say you're an engineer on a formula one car and you had a PhD in aerospace engineering, you spent the whole time in a lab designing a car, uh, but you actually never touch a wrench in your life. So you never actually know how to screw a, a bolt to a, to a thread or whatever it is uh, that you need to do to build an F1 car. Is there, is there a place for that for software architects in an organization or how hands-on should actually software architects be, in, uh, especially in like a continuous delivery, uh, cloud-based uh, tech company environment, let's say? Uh, with less hierarchy, less of this kind of solution architect that designs something, software architect then refines it and then engineer ends up, uh, engineering team implements it, but it's a more of a collaborative environment, then how hands-on should a software architect be? Yeah, I, I only believe in practicing architecture in a somewhat hands-on way. So if you design something purely in a theoretical way, as compared to what you would do in a, in a wind tunnel as an, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, aerospace engineer, engineer uh, it's it's fairly hard to get actual feedback whether what you do what you designed works or not. So I, I, I typically try to get quick feedback by trying something out, building a proof of concept, or or giving a design to a team and and have them look at it for a while or experiment with for with it for a while and see whatever feedback they have on whether this works or not. Uh, so in a way, we might have less sophisticated uh, simulation tools in software than the than the PhDs in aerospace engineering have in wind tunnels and stuff and models, right? On the other hand, I think software isn't really battle tested until it's it's under load in the hands of your end users. So I believe that even in the future, I think hands-on experience is, is vital to be able to keep designing, working and buildable uh, software architectures. Yeah, definitely. I guess because like designing an F1 car is the constraints or the requirements are relatively straightforward, right? You need to build something really fast for a driver. Of course, they're going to drive in a different style, um, but the the bounds of the problem are relatively well constrained. Whereas, like you just said, you don't know how your software is going to perform until you give it to your users because your users are also not predictable. Uh, if they were perfectly predictable, you could create some sort of simulation of load, um, how users are going to use your application. And maybe you can do this from history, like historic uh um, data as well if you're redesigning a system of course um, but it's it you never know until you really give it into the hands of the of the end users right oh, and you're right that indeed uh, uh, with load testing we have some way of simulating production load right but I think the key difference between de- designing software and designing an F1 car is that with an F1 car you have actually uh, you're, you're controlling hardware that is influenced by physics uh, right, whereas you're building software, well, there, there are some physics involved, but you know, a server can can fall down a rack, but but generally, uh, it's it's more just about the soft parts. So I I did a hardware project once where I uh, would together with a colleague built a a self-driving car. So that sounded really spectacular, but it was a real small like toy self-driving car with a Raspberry Pi and a camera to do image recognition. And what we found there was one of the the first things we found that we were lacking was a quick feedback loop and a simulation environment because we would turn on the car, it would drive on our test track and we would see whether we drive between the lines or not. But but it was really hard for us to debug and the feedback loops were immensely long because we would build a jar file, copy it on the Raspberry Pi, start it up, start the car, see it drive for, for 10 seconds, it went wrong, okay, try something else, deploy it, etc., etc., etc. So we did notice really quickly that we did need some sort of simulation to have quicker feedback loops. And that's obviously why for Formula One cars, they're not, I don't know, changing a wing uh, one degree and then riding a test lap and changing it again for one degree, but doing wind tunnel simulations because then they can get lots of more data without actually having to make the hardware work. I want to ask a question about innovation in software architecture. If we look back a little bit in history, a lot of the things we've been talking about kind of came into being between the years 1995 and 2005, the sort of tenure period where it seems like a lot of the thinking around software architecture solidified. A lot of the things like REST, um, solid principles, uh, domain-driven design. Um, but we're seeing less of these, what we might call academic innovations in modern, in recent times. 
Uh, and this has led some software engineers to speculate that we're living in a relative software dark age. Um, do you think that this is a fair assessment of where software architecture is at the moment? Um, well, I, I think that some of the things that used to be normal in the past and got out of fashion are now kind of in a second youth and, and coming back in fashion, right? If you think about microservices, they're not that much different from what we had with SOA around 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, for example. Um, and, and if you look at the front-end world, uh, well, 10 years ago, we had JSPs and uh, we had, uh, I don't know, PHP for server-side generated front-ends. And then we started to go all the way to uh, front-end development with single-page web apps that were run in the browser. But then we found out that, well, they might have some loading loading times or a bit data transfer and optimized for CO. And now we're going back to server-side rendering for Angular and React and Vue, which is not that much different from what we did with JSPs 10 years ago. So I think we're kind of like moving in circles uh, there. And one of the main revolutions we've seen in software in I think the past five or 10 years is the popularity of uh, and versatility of cloud services. So lots of things that used to be either really expensive uh, or really hard to do are now fairly simple for, the, for a reasonable cost. For example, things like image recognition. Uh, five years ago, it would be fairly hard to have uh, quick and cheap and reliable person recognition in images. Whereas now if you take uh, uh, if you have 10 colleagues and you take one picture of all your colleagues, you put it in a training set and you give it to, I don't know, AWS recognition and you put your camera on your laptop where you take a new picture and you feed it to your trained model, then it costs you probably uh, 10 cents and you have a 99.8 reliable detection of, of this person in this picture, which which is a lot harder to build yourself. So I think the, the fast availability of uh, reasonably priced cloud services is what's really influencing uh, our software architectures now and nowadays. And indeed, we don't have any like revolutionary new things like REST or Solid, but I think we're kind of like reiterating on things that used to work in the past in combination with, with having uh, lots of loads and loads of different types of cloud services available uh, for us to use. And on the topic of these new innovations and, uh, and architectural trends, do you think that there are any trends that are dramatically overrated by the public? Or conversely, any that aren't being spoken about enough? Yeah, I well, I'm in the business of, of building uh, well, custom custom software, so I don't really believe in low code and no code initiatives. I think the the companies that are successful in this have really good uh, marketing machines behind them, uh, and are really good at finding those people who are non technical enough to kind of buy the marketing message. I think these these uh, approaches are valid for simple stuff where it's not necessarily important that something is really maintainable or scalable or secure. But once you go for anything that's non-trivial, I think these approaches don't really work uh, that well. So I think that that's a, a trend that's uh, pretty much overrated. Uh, one trend that I've seen emerging for, the, emerging for the past two years or so is, is GraphQL. And I believe GraphQL is an interesting approach to build, well, basically flexible uh, APIs that can prevent problems like underfetching and overfetching uh, you have at rest, where you're either sending too much information or too little information, you need to make an extra call. And this can help you to to, to minimize the amount of data that's been transferred between uh, client and server. And can also help uh, that if it's desirable to, to make your front-end development or your app development more uh, disconnected from your backend development, like more independent, can also help in making those APIs more flexible. So I think that GraphQL is definitely an interesting trend that we will see more adoption for in the, the, the next couple of years. Uh, but also still lots of people who have never heard about GraphQL. So there's uh, still some, some room to, to win there, I guess. You mentioned this concept of simplicity earlier in, in the design of software architecture. And it reminded me of this observation called Gaul's Law, which states that in general, it's very difficult to design a complex software system upfront and that the successful complex software systems we see are often evolved from working simpler systems. Uh, in your experience, how important is it to prioritize simplicity in, in when designing a, a system to be built? Yeah, I like I like the idea, and and I think I do agree that most of the working complex systems in production are the result of evolving simple working systems in production. Uh, obviously, there, there's there's different types of complexity, right? There's 
there's uh, whenever the domain or the problem you have is complex, uh, I don't know, uh, detecting uh, deep fake videos or something. That's a algorithmically complex problem. Then it's probably okay if, you're, if the accompanying software is complex. But if you have a, a simple business problem and your software gets complex, this is typically called accident, accidental complexity. So I try to make things as simple as I can because, well, I'm a, I'm a simple person and I like simple ideas that fit in my head and, and not make things too complex. So I'd rather, I'd rather find out that this design is too simple and I need to add some complexity than to go the other way around and design it to be overly broad upfront. Um, and and uh, and uh, well, having basically too much accidental complexity in my design. But that's actually quite a um, like an honourable thing to do as well, because you have to realise I think as a whenever you're designing or writing software, that the next person coming along may not see a problem in the same way as you do, and the same applies for architecture, right? Like, okay, that if you're writing a well confined piece of code, and it's in a single class, single method, and it's just solves the problem really, really smartly. I don't know, using recursion and functional programming, but y- y- you may take a step back and you think, actually the next person who comes along and reads it, modifies and refactors this code is going to really, really, really have struggle to understand what's going on here. So maybe I should refactor it to be something simple. That's quite an honorable thing to do. And I think like the software architect approach is the same, right? Because sure, you can come up with this very contrived, fancy software architectural pattern, um, to kind of show off that you know this pattern or that you're proud of the fact that you can actually make a system uh, work with this pattern. But actually, is it the right thing to do? Because you're going to be refactoring that software uh, and the the architecture probably in two years' time. Uh, So maybe you should be a little bit kinder to the next person. Yeah, usually if you have the choice between having an exciting or a boring solution, then typically the boring solution could be the way to go. So I, I was just thinking about an example when you were saying about you know overly complex things. I remember sitting next to a colleague on a new project, and the colleague said, "Hey, uh, said, hey, look at this. Uh, I, I know who wrote this code." And I said, "So how do you know? Did you look like in the Git history? No, just by looking at the code, I know who wrote this." Okay, so what, what's going on here? I said, "Yeah, it looks really clever. Uh, probably it works perfectly, uh, and it does amazing things, but I have no idea what it does." <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you, you you do come across these gems uh every now and then in the, in working with the code base for a long time and what i also find is that i work on a project for like a few years and then you come back and you look back at what your your you know less experienced self did uh with either your less experience with the framework whatever it could be uh you th- you see kind of the uh, the naivety almost in the approach that you took. You you, you took the the approach of designing the software with a you know with a perfect holistic view on the world, but actually um, you should have taken a step back and like really diagnose whether this was something that you could digest in the future or someone else uh, working on the code base. Um, yeah, but it's it's I think it's easier said than done, especially if you're like given a new technology, or especially with technologies. Maybe architectural patterns is not so. Uh, it's it's not so common because they you know the the popular ones come less often like Reagan mentioned before uh, the the real like impactful ones are here to stay uh, for a long time but then like with the new technology especially especially if it's a low level framework then it can you can really take it uh, off in the wrong direction um, but yeah I think that's um, maybe that's a good place to end uh, the podcast uh, Bertian. I know you have a conference coming up, so maybe you want to also uh, speak a little bit about that and uh, where we can find you uh, uh, on the internet. Yes, we are. Uh, so I, I also active with the NLJEC, the Netherlands Java Use Group, and we are running uh, our yearly J4 conference, which is the biggest Java conference in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we've done it online for the past uh, one and a half year now because we basically didn't have a choice. But we're going uh, back for an in-person event on November 4th in uh, Ede in the Netherlands. Uh, so we're going to uh, organize the event with a bit of limited capacity compared to previous years. But it is going to be, I think, probably one of the first back to in-person, almost back to normal uh, conferences in the Netherlands. Uh, so you can find about uh, f- 50 sessions focused on Java and the Java ecosystem uh, there. Typically a great fun day to connect with, with some of your colleagues and, and learn about all the cool things that are new in the Java ecosystem. Uh, if anyone wants to find me online, I spend way too much time on Twitter. So you can find me there at, at BJ Schrijver. 
Um, feel free to reach out there, ping me, ask me a question, and I'll probably respond way too fast. <laughs> nice. And uh, we'll definitely add links to all of that in the show notes. So if uh, the listeners are curious, they can uh, they can find it all there. Definitely. Listen, thanks very much, guys. Really enjoyable to talk about software architecture. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you.